0: Well, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 14 once again. This evening we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and begin by reading Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. Verse 8 says this, At Lystra a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, Lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand up, right on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the sea, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, again we come to you and you are the one who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Your word says that you reign over all, you give strength to all, and that You are exalted as head over all. This evening we are humbled by your greatness and we thank you. We give praise to your name. We call upon you and ask that you would teach us this evening that your ways we might understand better and we would walk in your truth. Use this time to glorify yourself that your name would be exalted in every aspect of this service. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, for the many times that we Your people are influenced by the world's ideas more than yours. So refresh and renew our minds right now that we would be transformed and made to be more like Christ. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. The title of this evening's message is True Compassion for the World. And as we think about Paul and Barnabas, I'm reminded and Think about others, other missionaries whom I've read about, who we've heard about stories from their lives. One of my favorite being David Livingston, one of the best known missionaries in recent history. He is known for the tremendous work he accomplished and the Lord accomplished through him in sub Saharan Africa. He had an amazing connection with Africans. It's, It's funny, you read his biography and you find out that he didn't have such a great connection with a lot of other missionaries and sometimes people from his own country he found it difficult to get along with and yet he had a fabulous relationship with many Africans, so much so that they wanted his heart to be left in Africa. Many of you don't know this, but Livingston, who was a medical doctor, uh, grew up in a poverty-stricken family. From the time he was 10 until the time he was 20 years old, he worked 12 and a half hours a day in a cotton mill. We saw cotton growing here in the valley as we drove through this morning. I just can't imagine my 10-year-old spending the next 10 years of his life working 12 and a half hours a day in a British cotton mill from 1823 to 1832. During that time, Livingston grew up. When he grew up, less than 10% of children who worked in mills learned how to read and write Yet Livingston, after he worked 12 and a half hours, came home and spent from 8 p.m. until 10 p.m. studying, learning how to read and write, sometimes staying up until midnight. He not only learned to read and write, but he learned Latin during that time. Against extreme odds, he made it into medical school, and his desire was to be a missionary doctor. After his medical training, he went for theological training. And then he left the United Kingdom on a boat for Cape Town. Now, typically, a boat from London down to Cape Town would take somewhere between three and five months. That would be a pretty normal time. But Livingston's boat happened during their time to hit a storm, and one of the main masts broke on the ship in which he was a passenger. And so they had to drift until they could get it repaired. And so they drifted to Brazil. The trip took 15 months. His first overseas experience was actually in Brazil. And he went and visited villagers and tried to communicate with them and preach the gospel to them. Many don't know that about Livingston's life. I think about it every time my flight is delayed. Can, can, you, can you imagine, though, being a passenger on a boat? have the captain get his megaphone out and says, uh, attention passengers, um, as you may have noticed, the main mast has broken. And so while the good news is uh, we will make it to our destination, there will be a delay of approximately 12 months. (laughs) From Cape Town, he traveled by ox cart and by foot up to a mission station not too far from Johannesburg. And at that mission station, he met an older gentleman, a missionary by the name of Robert Moffat. The Moffats had a daughter named Mary. And David Livingston thought that sounded like a good name and a good idea. He fell in love with her, and they were eventually married. And throughout the late 1840s and early in the 1850s, Livingston traveled by foot, horseback, and ox cart to the sub-Saharan Africa, African region, now known as Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, and further than that, the Zambezi River is really where his main uh, missionary area was. That interior, he had a dream of getting ships and boats into the interior of Africa to bring in commerce, which he believed would bring in the gospel, and so he had these dual goals. Oftentimes, he brought his family with them. Other times, he left them places and went on with guides. He went through some various trials. His children had malaria malaria. There was one time where they ran out of water, and it was several days where he could find relief and water for his family. Next time you're in your car and your child is thirsty and you think, I've got to stop and get them water, I encourage you to do so, but just remember that what it must have been like with young children and not having water for days, not knowing where you're going to find it next. Then their fourth child was born after the family had traveled 600 miles on a trip, only for the baby to become ill and pass away. His driving passion, though, was to preach Christ where he had not yet been preached. In one of his letters from that period of his life, he wrote about an experience he had after crossing the Kalahari Desert. He wrote, quote, I cannot help earnestly coveting the privilege of introducing the gospel. To a new land and a new people. When I heard the new language, I felt that if I could translate the scripture into it, I might be able to say that I have not lived in vain. What pushed him, what, in, what caused great joy, almost to the sense of feeling guilty about coveting the privilege of being able to carry the gospel to a tribe that had never heard it. With every new tribe that he met, there was a passion to preach in spite of the hardships. And like many missionaries, he never felt as though he went through any hardships. In fact, in 1852, he decided to send his family back to London so the children could be educated and his wife could regain her strength while he carried on with the work. And not knowing when or if they would see each other again, he wrote this, that Christ's command, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and forbid it that we should ever consider holding a commission from the king of the King of kings. Forbid it that we'd ever consider that to be a sacrifice. He didn't see his work as a sacrifice. He saw it always as a privilege. As we come to Acts chapter 14 and we read about Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They were sent out, remember, from Antioch. If you think of that Mediterranean world. Mediterranean Sea there. North of it is Europe. We have the Straits of Gibraltar that are on the uh, west side opening up to the Atlantic Ocean. We have there's Spain and then Italy sticking down into it and then there's Greece and then there's Turkey and then you come down and there's Palestine where Israel is at and you come along and you have uh, the African continent below it. That was the world. That was... The inhabited world where most of the people lived in that time, and that was where Paul wanted to bring the gospel to. They first left from Antioch, there on that northeastern corner, and they sailed to the island of Cyprus, started on one side in Salemis, came across to Perga, as we talked about this morning. They were persecuted there, or they went to, sorry, they went to, uh, from Salemis to Paphos, and then they sailed north. To Southern Turkey, and they went to Perga, and from there they went up to Pisidian antioch it was a It was a former general actually of uh, Alexander the Great, who found all these cities I believe there were sixteen altogether, all named antioch because his father's was his father was named antiochus, and so alexander the great 's general decided to name sixteen cities with the same name, which this is why it becomes quite confusing for us when we read about Antioch and Antioch and Antioch. And they often talked about them with uh, Antioch, Pisidia, Antioch of Syria. He was from Antioch of Syria. He went into Turkey, into Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. And he's persecuted there, so they left to Iconium, where we read about this morning. He just escaped there without being stoned. But he traveled now to Lystra, further east, into a rural region of Galatia. And it's there where Paul and Barnabas went there with the exciting opportunity to preach the gospel to a people who had not yet heard it. And in this passage, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20, we find four observations that really demonstrate a great compassion for the lost. Four observations that demonstrate to us what incredible compassion for lost people, for the world lost people of the world, what it looks like. The first observation we make is in verses 8 through 10, and we see that those who care about the lost care about genuine faith. Those who care about the lost care about genuine faith. Take a look at verse 8. It says, At Lystra a man was sitting, who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who... When he had fixed his gaze on him had seen that he had faith to be made well and said with a loud voice stand upright on your feet and he leaped and began to walk Now Luke the doctor his account of the ministry in Lystra begins with the healing of a paralyzed man Typically Paul and Barnabas began their ministry where In a synagogue, we're not sure if there wasn't a synagogue in Lystra, or if this was in the synagogue, or this was just shortly after they had been in a synagogue. But we're not told that. But we're we're told about this story, which Luke tells us about a man, and we learn several details about this man sitting and listening to Paul and Barnabas. He had no strength in his feet; he was lame from his mother's birth. In fact. He had never walked. It was evident to all that this man had a genuine, identifiable disability. This miracle wasn't going to be the healing of something that nobody else could verify or people would be able to deny. It wasn't going to be a healing of lower back pain. It wasn't going to be a healing of ringing in the ears. This man's legs... Were visibly marred and worthless, and people knew it, and they had known it his whole life. His ears were good; in fact, he was listening so intently that Paul saw, Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. We don't know how Paul knew this. We don't know if if it was because the Holy Spirit revealed it to Paul. We don't know whether this was part of his apostolic giftedness or whether he was just this man was showing such sincere and recognizable belief. In the way he listened. And sometimes we hear people, and you can kind of tell from their body language whether they're really believing what is being said. But verse 9 tells us that this man had faith to be made well or faith to be healed. Which brings up an interesting question, doesn't it? Does God require faith for physical healing? There are many so called faith healers today who would say yes. And of course, it's very convenient for them to say that faith is required for healing because when they fail to heal somebody, they can just blame it on that person and say, well, they don't have enough faith to be healed. And they point to passages like this. I would argue that that is not compassion. I would argue that that's a misunderstanding of Scripture and it's a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts that were for a certain purpose at a certain time. The Scripture give us some clear account of times when there was absolutely no faith required and there was healing granted. In John chapter 9, for example, there was a man who was born blind, and he didn't have faith because when he was questioned by the Pharisees twice, he didn't even know who Jesus was. They tried to get him to admit that Jesus was a sinner, and he replied in John chapter 9, verse 25... Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Mark chapter 5, Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a demon-possessed man into a herd of pigs. That man couldn't have evidenced faith prior to the demons being cast out. On the other hand, there are some instances in Scripture where it seems as though faith is required for healing. And perhaps the most helpful question we could ask is not, does God require faith? But when faith is required of someone for healing, what kind of faith is it? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was approached by two blind men who were asking for healing. And in Matthew 9, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Do you believe... That I am able to do this. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. You see, the kind of faith that Jesus asked them about was not a faith that says, God, I know it's your will for me to be healed. And if I just believe that it's your will for me to be healed enough, I will be healed. Rather, it was the belief that God is able to heal. Jesus asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He didn't say like the modern faith healers say, expect to be healed and you'll be healed. In fact, the words that Luke uses to confirm the the miracle in in, uh, Acts chapter 14 the same words, faith and made well, are used in sorry, in, in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 50. In Luke 7, there was a woman who anointed Jesus' feet with costly perfume. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And people responded, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to her, your faith has saved you. That word to save can be translated as to be made well or even to deliver. Your faith has delivered you. Delivered you from illness, delivered you from sickness, delivered you to salvation. The same word could be used a number of different ways. But the faith that the paralyzed man had in Acts chapter 14 was not, I believe that I'm going to be healed, but rather, he believed the message that was preached. He believed that Jesus was able to do anything that's the kind of faith that was necessary. The, I, 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 You may have noticed I wear glasses. And uh, uh, I have an infirmity. It's it's not a big infirmity. It's a small infirmity. I, I could have wore contacts and told you I didn't have it. But I, I do have uh, poor eyesight. It's not that poor, but you wouldn't want to drive in a car with me without my glasses. And if you question that, just speak to my wife. But... Uh, I believe with all my heart that God is able to heal my eyes. There's no question in my mind. God can do it. But whether he does that or not is not dependent upon my belief that he will do it. Rather, I submit it to whatever glorifies him the most. It may be that he would be glorified in healing me by giving me perfect eyesight instantaneously. And I believe he's able to do that. There's not a doubt in my mind about that. But it may be that he'd be more glorified when he sees someone like me satisfied, no matter what. No matter what is allowed to come in my life, whatever infirmity or weakness, may he be glorified. God does heal today. And when we're in need, I believe it's right and appropriate to pray for God to bring about healing. But always according to his will. And whatever glorifies him the most. When we pray for healing, we pray, Lord, you know our desire. Our desire is that this trial or this infirmity could be erased right now, immediately, that you would make it whole and heal it completely, instantly. But ultimately, thy will be done. We submit it to you and whatever glorifies you the most, we trust in your wisdom. You have a heavenly sovereign perspective. We have an earthy, earthly temporal perspective. But because you are holy and you are above all things and your track record is perfect, we submit it to you. And that's how we pray. And then we live glorifying him. In the case of the lame man in Acts 14, it was God's will to heal him because, though, because at that time, the message needed to be confirmed. And we spoke some about that this morning. It didn't need to be confirmed, but it was often confirmed, especially to groups that had never heard the message before. It was confirmed as Hebrews 2 3 and 4 through many signs and wonders. We read Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 this morning. If you want to write those down, look that up again and look about the confirmation and the reason why in those early times. In those early times, if somebody came and said, thus says the Lord. They could verify it through their signs and wonders. If I came to you today and said, this is what God says. You could verify it, but you wouldn't need signs and wonders. You could verify it because we have a complete canon of Scripture. And if what I say doesn't match with what the Word says, then you know who's wrong, don't you? And in those days, there was a certain gift that was used, as Hebrews 2 teaches us, because it confirmed, past tense, the Word which was spoken. But Paul said... In verse 10 in Acts 14, stand up on your feet, and he leaped He leaped up and began to walk. It was a miracle. We're not sure why he was lame. If it was a spinal problem, he not only fixed the spine, but he fixed all the atrophy that would have been there after a lifetime of no use. This man did not need physical therapy. He did not need to come back in six months. He came. It was instantaneous. And that gift the gift of healing, the one that Jesus had, that the apostles had, it had characteristics that we've never seen anything like it in our day and age. It was instant. It was total. It was public. It was visible. It healed organic diseases that were unable to be cured any other way. It was miraculous without any other explanation. And it was able to be done by the apostles and by our Lord, by those who verified the word God. Of God. Paul and Barnabas cared about that man. They cared about his infirmity, but they cared most of all about his faith. And they recognized that faith, and they used this believing man's faith as a means to confirm the message that they were speaking. Paul had great compassion for the lost, and he demonstrated that by caring about people's faith. A second observation we make in our passage this evening is that those with great compassion for the lost care about people's understanding. They care about people's understanding. Take a look at verses 11 through 14. In verse 11 it says, When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. We have found uh, writings from a Roman poet named Ovid, who died in the year A.D. 17. He wrote about a traditional legend that was popular in Lystra. According to his legend, or this myth, there was a Greek god, two Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, had visited Lystra one time in the past. And they had gone door to door, looking for food and lodging, and everyone that they asked in the town had denied them, except for an old peasant couple named Philemon and Bacchus. And as a reward for taking them in, the old couple was rewarded when the humble cottage their humble cottage was turned into a huge temple and they became priests. And the homes of those who denied them were destroyed by a flood and the people drowned. And that was a story that was, had been told. It's recorded in antiquity by Ovid and uh, kind of a frightening story. We don't know how the town was repopulated or whatever. We know that there was a temple to Zeus outside the city. This was an old story that had been told about good old Philemon and Bacchus, that couple who were priests. And uh, the moral of the story is, be hospitable to strangers. Evidently, The people thought of that piece of local folklore when they saw the healings of the paralyzed man and they started to shout, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. But instead of speaking in Greek, which is surely what Paul and Barnabas would have been speaking to them in, they spoke in their local Laconian dialect, which Paul and Barnabas did not understand. They just heard all the screaming and shouting and excitement and they were thrilled and they didn't know really what was happening until a local pagan priest shows up with some animals to sacrifice to these two men as though they were gods, Zeus and Hermes, which tells us a little bit about them. Zeus was the better looking of the two. So Barnabas was probably better looking than Paul. We know that Paul wasn't much to look at from some of his writings. But Paul was the better speaker because Hermes was the one who was vocal and who was a great teacher and speaker and and great in oratory. And so um, that's why they called Paul Hermes and this other guy, the good looking one, must be Zeus looks like a, this guy looks like a Greek god. Which, I mean, if somebody said that about you, how many of you would want to correct them quickly? I mean, these are, these are pretty good compliments. But Paul and Barnabas tore their robes. They ripped their shirts open. Which was common in those days among Jews as a sign that there was Blasphemy. We read about it in Scripture in Matthew 26, verse 65. Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and said, "He has blasphemed. What further need do you have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy." Now, from a human perspective, Paul and Barnabas, they might have been able to use this whole rouse as as a as for their benefit. I mean, someone who was less concerned about the people and less concerned about the truth might have played along for a while. I'm glad I've never been tempted with people thinking that I'm a god. I mean, especially if you're in the neck of woods of Galatia, where people tend to throw stones at you and kill you. I mean, it might have been very convenient to have a whole town at your disposal so that when they come from the other towns and want to throw rocks at you, you being Paul could say, Hey, Zeus, uh... Maybe we should get the people here, they, these, these people want to attack us. Maybe we should get the local people to defend us. Yeah, good, that's a good idea, Hermes. Looks like there's a flood coming here if they don't. I mean, you could start to use the folklore to your advantage. And, and I think that there are people today who are not so concerned about the truth and who say the ends always justify the means. Who cares whether it's true or not? If it helps, us, helps them to, to come to our church or to listen to us, then why not use it? And they're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices in truth for numbers and results. But that's not really a heart of compassion, is it? And Paul and Barnabas, their main interest was not self-preservation. It was not self-promotion. Their desire was to glorify God, the God who had sent them, to reveal the truth to the people because God cared about those people. And even the fact that Paul and Barnabas never thought of using that misunderstanding to their advantage demonstrates their understanding of how great God is and how gracious he is to save anyone. He's a God who's above everything and yet he cares. You know, our... Philosophy of ministry. I know at this church, your philosophy of ministry, let me break it down for you. This is how it works. This is the thinking of the elders of this church. It's important to you that you not only hear the word of God, but that you understand it. Understanding is important because the better you understand the word of God, the more you will be able to apply it to your life, the more you will understand who he is, the more you'll be motivated to live a life that is like Christ, the more that Christ will be honored and glorified, and the more true worship will take place. And so those who teach at this church take great effort to help those under their care to understand because having compassion for the world means that understanding is important. If understanding weren't important, we wouldn't have the Bible in our own language. We could be like the Dark Ages where it was in Latin and nobody spoke Latin but the priests, and we could just read it in Latin as though it were magic words falling down over your ears, and now you're blessed for hearing it even though you didn't understand it. But it's not just the Word of God that's important. It's that you understand the Word of God. And compassion is demonstrated by making sure that there are no misunderstandings about the Word of God. And that's the heart of compassion that's displayed by Paul and Barnabas. They cared about genuine faith. They cared about people's understanding. A third observation we make in our text is that those with compassion for the lost care about the truth. They care about the truth, verses 15 through 18. Verse 15 Begins, actually back in verse 14. They were crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from what? From these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. The message of Paul and Barnabas was that the people of Lystra should turn from what is vain, that is, what is useless, what is worthless, what is hopeless. And turn to the living God. Which God is that? Well, he's the God who made the heaven. He's the God that made the earth and the sea. He's the God that made everything that is in the heavens and the earth and the sea. Remember, he's, they're speaking to a Gentile city. Unlike the Jews, they had not grown up learning about Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh was foreign to them, but through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, they're able to reveal details about the one and only true God, a God that they had never heard about, yet they'd known, they've would known they known that he's existed their whole lives. Verses 16 and 17 are amazing because they teach us some details about how God has revealed himself to the world. We learn, first of all, that God has never forced people to believe in him. He's never forced people like robots that they must believe in him. Verse 16 says, in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Now every nation and every people group in our time and back in that time would have traced their heritage back to one family, the family of Noah, because we, there's no need to trace it back further. We, we, we could go back to Adam, but the, the whole world was reduced. And if you weren't in the line of Noah, you wouldn't be here today. So those who are in the line of Noah, eight people on the ark, one family. God destroyed the entire world with a flood. And every person on that boat, whether they believed God before the flood or not, they certainly believed him after. In fact, in Genesis 9, verse 8 God made the covenant with Noah that he wouldn't destroy the earth again with a flood. And it says, God spoke to Noah and his sons. So you had eight people alive on the planet, and 100% of the population of the planet believed in God. They believed in the true God. And yet, God didn't just end civilization then, He patiently waited for his whole plan to be revealed, and he's still patiently waiting for all of those he's calling to come in. And at the end of the day, he didn't force their children to believe or their children's children. No matter what your parents believe, every individual person is responsible for the way that they respond to God's witness. And God always has a witness. We learn that in verse 17. God has always given a certain amount of light that points directly to him. It says in verse 17, And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, rain and the seasons that bring rain just at the right time so that their crops, crops can grow. That is enough for anyone to say, who designed this? I mean, I'm eating a piece of fruit, but where did this fruit come? Oh, it came from a tree. Well, where did the tree come from? Well, it came from a, a seed. Well, where did the seed come from? Well, it came from a piece of fruit. Well, wait a minute. I, I, I believe we're going into circular reasoning now. And at some time in the past, there either had to be a tree without a seed, or a fruit without a tree. So which was it? The fruit or the, or the tree? The chicken or the egg? I mean, it's the same question, and, and people have asked it for centuries. Happiness and joy also. Who designed that? They don't come from us. It should be evident that we don't create joy, but it's a gift from God. And any joy we receive is, is really a gift from heaven. We can go for a long time without joy, and when we have it, it's special, and we appreciate it, and we should be thankful for it. Just as we're thankful for rain that can grow crops, which brings food. It's a reminder that we're totally dependent upon God for everything, even the basic objects of life, like rain, food, joy. Romans 1 writes about this. Romans 1 verse 19 says, Because that which is known about God is evident within us, within mankind. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. No one could say, I never knew there was a God. Deep down in everyone's heart, they know that there's a God, because they see his witness and his light all around them. Romans one twenty one says their hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Exchanging the glory of God for images. People say, there must be a God. I'm going to worship the tree. They worship the created being rather than the creator. And as I mentioned this morning, one of the reasons is because they know in their heart that if they have to submit to the authority of God, they have to give up their sin, which they love so much. And so, as Romans 1 says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I told a story, I think last time I was here, about a boy who had a puppy. It was a big puppy, and his parents said, never in the house. And they come into his room, and and they hear something in his room, and he quick scrambles around, and and he's sitting on his toy chest, and the lid's popping up, and they hear whimpering and barking. And they said to the boy, Is there a dog in this room? He says, no, there's no dog in this room. And everybody, the boy, the parents, the dog, everybody knows there's a dog in that room, and yet he is suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness. And that's what it's like around us. People can tell you there is no God, and yet you can be sure they're trying to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But one of the scariest passages we'll ever find is in Romans 124, because the men who exchanged the glory of God for images that look like men and animals, Romans one twenty four says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. It's frightening because it teaches us that God gives everybody what they want. You don't want the true God? He won't force you to want him. But he has revealed to us a sufficient amount of light so that we are without excuse. And because he's a good God, we believe that anyone who cries out and says, God, you must be out there. Won't you reveal yourself to me? And that's when the good God calls one of his churches to send forth people to bring forth special revelation. Because natural revelation, like trees and seeds, And rain are enough to condemn us because we can deny God by seeing them and say, I don't want to have anything to do with God because I'll have to give up my sin. But the only way to be cleansed and forgiven and washed is through Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, says Acts 4.12. And there is no other way of salvation. And the gospel, it needs to be preached throughout this world. And somebody who has true compassion, who has the words of life, will share it with others. And God sends forth people. And that's why we have the privilege of going out throughout this world and sharing the gospel. And there are people here in this community who don't know the gospel. And yet their hearts are open because God has opened the eyes of their heart to see their sin and they're ready. And we don't know who they are. So we need to preach Christ to everyone. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. And what we need to do and what this church needs to do and think about the time that Paul and Barnabas lived and during Paul and Barnabas's time, If you, prior to the gospel going out, if you wanted to find out the truth about the creator you would have to travel to Jerusalem to his chosen people who were a light unto the whole world. And many people did and found the truth like the Ethiopian eunuch who went there and was reading the scroll of Isaiah. But even he needed it explained to him. But when we we come to the New Testament and Christ and his death and resurrection. Now the good news goes out to all. And there are people who are part of the body of Christ spread throughout the whole world, shining a light unto him so that people will either flee from that light or be drawn to it and say, expose my sin. I repent. I turn. I want to follow Christ no matter the cost. He's my only hope. I have no hope in this world without him. The true and living God, the God who created all things, has revealed himself, has chosen to reveal himself in a book. And this book is the book of living words. This book is alive. I've never seen a book like it. I've read other books, but this book reads me. I read it and I say, oh, wretch that I am. What can I do? And then it tells me. This book knows me. And it gives me all the answers that I need. Everything I need for life and godliness has been given to me. And I thank God for that. But I also bear the burden because I have great compassion for other people to share with them the truth. And Paul did that. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 14 says the man was listening to Paul as he spoke. How can it be that we live in a world where a product that is a high-calorie carbonated drink originally invented for medicinal use in 1866, how can it be that that product has somehow done a better job at sharing its news than the church? How is it that Coca-Cola is known throughout the world, even in places where Jesus Christ is not known? except for the fact that people typically don't object. They're not threatened by Coca-Cola. Now, I know today there are many here, even in this room, who are threatened by Coca-Cola. But by and large, it's easier to accept Coca-Cola than it is to recognize your own sin and repent of it. And that's why there's so much opposition to the truth. Paul and Barnabas, according to Acts 14, 7, continued to preach the gospel there, and that there is Lystra and Derbe. It was preached, and not only that, as we saw this morning in verses 21 and 23, they returned back to Lystra to establish elders. They were planting churches. By the way, you know who's from Lystra? Timothy. Isn't that beautiful? Timothy could have been one of those men who's here, who's listening, if not later he came to Christ, but... The impact that Timothy had, this is the beauty of the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Christ and them catch the compassion and vision for their neighbors, which really leads us to a fourth observation. It was a genuine compassion that Paul and Barnabas had for the lost, which was demonstrated in care about genuine faith, care about people's understanding, care about the truth. And fourthly, those with compassion for the lost care more about others than they do about themselves. They care more about others than they do about themselves. Verse 19 and verse 20 say this, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Normally, they would drag him out of the city and then stone him. But apparently, they were so furious, they didn't wait. They stoned him right there in the city. Then they dragged him out and left him for dead, not even a burial. Supposing him to be dead, verse 20 says, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. The tenacity, the resolve, the drive of Paul is overwhelming here. He cares so much about others, so much more than about himself. There are some who speculate that he actually died here. I, I don't believe that that's true, but there are some who read Second Corinthians twelve two when Paul mentions a third heaven experience, and they say, "Well, that must have been when he's stoned and left for dead. He must have really been dead, and then he was resurrected, and that's when he had his third heaven experience." I think there are some problems with that. Firstly, in Second Corinthians twelve two, it mentions that it happened fourteen years prior to that, and there are some problems then with the dating of this book. But more importantly, the text itself says that it was supposed, supposing he was dead. And that word supposing, common usage of that word is implied that supposing that there was something that was not true. You use that word when you made an assumption and it was not true. So they supposed him to be dead, but he was not dead. That's the implication of the word in normal usage. In addition to that, If this really was a resurrection, there would have been no need in the book of Acts to downplay that. There were other people who were raised from the dead in the book of Acts. Dorcas in Acts chapter 9 was raised from the dead. Eutychus, the guy who couldn't stay awake during a sermon, was raised from the dead in Acts chapter 20. So we have spectacular, undeniable, and not downplayed at all, Uh, accounts of people being raised from the dead, this would have been just a normal other way to write about this from Physician Luke, but he says supposing, which leads me to believe that he wasn't really dead. He just was so beaten up that everybody thought he was dead, including those who were trying to kill him. But what's astonishing about this passage is not found in verse 19, but it's found in verse 20. There's just... Every phrase just hits you again and again as you read it. While they're standing around him, the ones who love him, first you read he got up. That <laughs> that must have been a surprise to everyone. What he comes to? He's what he's he's not just awake, he gets up. Then the next phrase, he entered the city. Are you kidding me? You know what just happened in that city? Let's go back. Now, I suppose for argument's sake, there'd be a good case to be made that it was probably safer to enter the city when they thought you were dead than if they thought you were alive. Nobody's out looking for you anymore because they're celebrating. (laughs) That's one more guy that's gone. He's like, I'm going to go to bed. But I think the most astonishing phrase, perhaps in the whole passage, unbelievable, is the words, the next day. The next day? The next day he went away with Barnabas. Where? To Derby. The next day? Now, think about this. You've been beaten with stones so badly that they thought you were dead. The best of missionaries. The best of all people. This would be the one day where they say, you know what? we got a trip tomorrow. I think maybe I should take a day off. Maybe I should just kind of stay home today. But Paul would have none of that because he had compassion for people in Derby, a 45-mile journey by foot. So the next day he gets up and walks to Derby with Barnabas. That's what compassion looks like. Genuine compassion for the lost. He didn't want to waste one single day where he could be telling people about his Lord Now, this morning, we talked a lot about the mission of the church. I believe sometimes we get distracted from our mission, doing some things that are very good things. And that's what makes it so difficult, is because there are many things that we can do, but there are some things that we must do. And if we neglect to do the things that we must do, because we're so concerned about the things that we can do, then we have failed our mission. And you know what I'm talking about because there are, there are lots of things pulling for your attention and your focus. But brothers and sisters, we have the words of life. And yes, we need, to compa- we need to be compassionate to people's physical needs. And we will be because that's who we are. We're transformed people. We can't help but care about them. But churches today need to be cautioned to keep the main thing the main thing. And until he comes, we must proclaim his truth. Because genuine compassion involves caring about people's faith, caring that they understand the word, caring about the truth of God as he has revealed himself to the world, and caring more about others than ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. We're just really astonished. Sometimes we think about people we don't like in church and we say maybe they should go to the mission field. What a a terrible thought that is. Paul and Barnabas were the leaders of the church. They were the best that the church had. And they were sent out to a world that desperately needed to hear the truth. And their hearts for compassion are so evident. Help us all to have the same hearts of compassion, be willing to go anywhere, say what needs to be said, stand up, share the truth, give us courage, give us strength, give us the same kind of attitude that are displayed in our text. For your namesake, not for our own. May we know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And we pray this to you, to you who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen.